přátelé, já vám zase přeji pěkné odpoledne a dovolte mi, abych tady přivítal hosty. Nejdřív bych přivítal Jeffreyho Winterse, který je z Department of Political Sciences Northwestern University of Chicago. A pan profesor Winters je tady, protože nás taky mimo jiné zaujala velice jeho kniha, která se jmenuje jednoduše oligarchie. A ta kniha má šanci, že se relativně brzo dostane i do českého jazyka. A proto bych tady přivítal taky Ondřeje Lánského z Karlovy univerzity v Praze, sociologa, který právě finišuje překlad této práce o oligarchii. Protože, jak je vidět, práce o oligarchii zaujala i tedy české čtenáře už v této chvíli. A já jsem rád, že tady můžeme pana Winterse přivítat, protože ta jeho práce, já jsem měl teda možnost část si přečíst, tak tuším, o čem bude. A ona si klade otázku, která může i nás zajímat. Protože oligarchie je, jak víme, systém, ve kterém několik prominentních osobností má vládu nad společností. A jak tuším říkají ty definice u toho starého Řecka, tak jí vládnou ve prospěch té malé skupiny. No a člověk by si myslel, že oligarchie existovaly na vrcholu starého Říma. Sparta. O Spartě se říká, že byla oligarchická, že to byl příklad oligarchického zřízení. Ale my bychom si řekli, že teď už by nás nemusela oligarchie tak zajímat, protože my žijeme v demokracii. A v demokracii přece máme volby, že jo, a ten systém voleb, ten dává všem rovné právo, tak bychom se měli mít schopnost s oligarchií vypořádat. Protože demokracie by měla být nástroj, který nám brání v tom, aby ve společnosti se skupinka lidí, řekněme těch nejbohatších, jak říká Aristoteles, ta skupinka těch nejbohatších zmocnila vlády nad věcmi a rozhodovali ve svůj prospěch. Takže to otázka je, proč vás, pane profesore Wintersi, zajímá oligarchie v této době a proč si myslíte, že o tomto tématu má smysl dnes mluvit v demokratické společnosti České nebo v demokratické společnosti Spojených států amerických. To by byla možná první otázka, kterou bych vám zkusil položit a podle toho pak uvidíme, jak dál. Prosím, pane profesore, welcome in Ostrava. A ještě bych řekl takovou věc, pan profesor, není z té Ostravy zas tak překvapený, protože on sice působí v Chicagu, ale je z Clevelandu ve státě Ohio, což je město, které mělo údajně kdysi tak 800-900 a protože prošlo Bethlehem Steel, prošlo poměrně špatným vývojem díky Korejcům, tak vlastně zažilo podobnou transformaci jako my tady v ostravské aglomeraci. Takže on z Clevelandu zná, zná toto prostředí i problémy že od oceláren a připadá mu to tady, že to není zas tak vzdálené jeho životní zkušenosti. Řekl jsem to dobře. <laughs> Děkuji. A teď se vracíme k té oligarchii. Pane profesore, proč se zabýváte oligarchií až tak, že jste dokonce o ní napsal celou knihu? And uh, you ask a very provocative question right from the beginning, which is, um, we are in an era of unprecedented spread of democracy actually in the world. So if, if we think of this modern era as being roughly 250 years into 
the modern democratic experience, um, the number of countries, the extent of the population worldwide, um, is more democratic than it has actually ever been. Um, and so it's a fair question, uh, Lubomir, to ask why in the world would you talk about um, oligarchs? So I will come back to the point of oligarchs in a moment, but let me begin by actually um, stating a very simple principle. And the simple principle is this, that democracy is, has as, at its foundation a principle of equality. And this is not a controversial point. Um, so for example, the enshrinement of that principle, fundamental principle of equality, is that all of us in this room, I will guess, are committed to the idea of one person, one vote. This is a very radically equal idea. It's also historically rare. Throughout most of, of human history, that kind of horizontal equal spread of power and distribution is extremely rare. But I doubt many of you in the room would say some people should have a thousand votes or a million votes and other people should have only one. Something about that as a matter of principle bothers you. It certainly bothers me and most people who are committed to the democratic principle. So, democracy is founded on the idea of equal political power and voice. What is also interesting, however, so that's the kind of horizontal dimension to the era we live in. However, starting back actually several thousand years, human communities began to be extremely stratified, extremely unequal in other forms of power. And one of the most important forms of tremendous inequality is actually material, economic wealth. And so we live in a moment of tremendous human inequality in the distribution what we produce as a human community. Some people, a very limited number, get an enormous amount, and others get almost nothing at all. And the interesting thing about this moment is that two points. One, every democracy that we live in is a stratified democracy. It is a contradiction, actually. Tremendous inequality combined with tremendous equality, both of them existing in the same moment. And a second point we can make about this inequality is that it is not just material. So you may say, I'm offended or I am upset about the extreme uh, maldistribution of what there is for people to live on and live from. That would be a problem in and of itself, but something is very important about wealth uh, distribution which is unequal, which is wealth is also a form of power. And wealth can be converted relatively easily in the modern era into political power. And so the consequence is this. Although we would not tolerate a system, a political system in which one person got one vote, 
and someone else got a million votes. Yet we tolerate a system in which some people have virtually no wealth power and others have massive wealth power that they convert into political power. And so the question that hangs over us is, why are we so committed to equality on one side of the ledger, but we are not upset about inequality on the other that bleeds into the political system? It's a very troubling question. And in fact, I would go so far as to say it is one of the most important challenges of our time because the expectation of democracy is somehow that we will achieve greater human dignity, greater human opportunities, and every society that becomes democratic actually starts as incredibly unequal. Domination, stratification, marginalization. It's actually typical of every society that is becoming democratic. There's something called the promise of democracy, the hope of democracy. Why do people fight and die to become democratic? For what? What would be the purpose? The purpose is actually freedom is supposed to be a pathway to greater equality. Addressing those many dimensions in which we are not equal in which we maltreat each other. And the story of the last 250 years of the democratic experience is, I am sorry to say, not a very good one. Here's why. First, on a number of issues that are extremely important, let me take one, gender equality. Gender equality historically is something where males have been quite dominant over females for a very, very long time around the planet. And through democracy and through opportunities to struggle and the right to vote and the freedom to speak and the freedom to organize, we have seen progress for women around the world. But that progress is incredibly slow in democracies to develop and limited globally in its distribution. So the world today is still heavily male-dominated, till today. On racial and religious and even sexual orientation grounds, there has been progress in parts of the world where marginalized groups have, through the promise of democracy, been able to experience greater human dignity. But again, the progress is remarkably slow, like the movement of a glacier. And one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, why is it that our participation power is so tremendous, we all have a right to participate and vote, and yet the movement, the transformation is so slow? It's a very important question to ask ourselves. But now I'm going to turn to the oligarchic question because this is where the story is not just one of democracy slowly producing change and transformation, but actually moving in the opposite direction. Over the last 250 years of the democratic experiment that we are in, 
the world, and especially those parts of the world which are democratic, were more equal 250 years ago than they are today. More, we are less equal materially than we were even 10 years ago. So the process of wealth concentration in the world within countries and between them is not only high, but actually accelerating. Let me give you an example from the world statistics and then a case I know well, the United States. 15 years ago, it took more than 500 rich people in the world to equal the total bottom half combined of the wealth of the world. You had to collect 500 rich people to equal the bottom half. That was roughly 3.5 billion people equaled 500. That was the wealth distribution. Today, it is less than 50. 50 individuals on the planet have more wealth in their hands than the bottom 3.7 billion people on the planet. And it's accelerating. In the United States, 15 years ago, you needed more than 200 wealthy billionaires to equal the wealth of the bottom half of the US. That's 155 million people in the US. Today, how many? Three. Three people in the United States have as much wealth as the entire bottom half of the population. Name them. Bezos, Gates, Buffett. Three very nice people. Are they evil? No, not necessarily. But something is wrong in a democracy when people have so much power and yet we are not able through democratic policies not to eliminate the wealth of these people, not to eliminate it, but to spread the opportunities so that people can do well. Access to education, access to healthcare, access to housing, and so on and so on. These are within the reach of a democratic people, but not if oligarchs are in control of the situation. And so, I turn now to the, I've been talking for a moment mostly about democracy and the principle of equality, but I'm gonna turn now specifically to the question of oligarchs and why we need to talk about them in this era, which is what you asked. Okay, so first question, who are oligarchs? How do we define them? And I offer a simple definition that actually goes back to Aristotle. And Aristotle did not just say it is ruled by the few. He said it is ruled by the wealthy few. He was quite specific about this. But the wealthy part got forgotten over many centuries and it was just ruled by the few. But Aristotle was very clear. Wealth is a form of power and the defense of that wealth is a certain kind of politics. So question number one, who are oligarchs? Oligarchs are actors who are empowered by wealth. Point two, 
what is an oligarchy? Okay? An oligarchy is not actually a political system. It describes an expression of power. So what is the number one concern that all oligarchs have? It's something that we can call wealth defense. If you have a tremendous fortune, how many of you are billionaires in here? Anybody? Okay. Lubomir? Okay. <laughs> Just checking. You know, politicians sometimes become billionaires. You know, it, it, it happens, you know. You're but not the socialists, right? No, 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 okay, okay. All right, a very interesting thing about material distribution. We normally think that the more poor you are, the more you focus on your poverty, but it's actually not true. You don't focus on your material position as much as when you are rich. Having a fortune concentrates your focus. You have a lot to lose, and you have a lot to protect. And there are basically three sources of threat, historically, that oligarchs have faced. One is from below. That is, the people who are not rich can potentially threaten and attack the wealthy. This is a very common, uh, it's happened many, many times in history. Source number two is horizontal, not vertical. That is, oligarchs throughout most of history have attacked other oligarchs. That's one way of getting richer. You take what the other oligarch has by force. And the third source is a modern source. That is, again, vertical. The state, once it becomes armed and oligarchs become disarmed for the first time in history, throughout most of history, oligarchs are armed because that's how they defend their wealth. This wonderful, what's his name? Uh, the guy on the, on the horse in, uh, in Prague, you know, with the sword. Um, if you're an oligarch, you have to be armed. You have to have a castle to defend your wealth because there's another oligarch ready to take your wealth. But today, the state is armed and oligarchs are disarmed. And so the state is a potential taker and redistributor of wealth through taxation. And so, in the modern era, the obsession of oligarchs is to make sure that the state cannot take and cannot redistribute. And so, an entire industry that I call the wealth defense industry has arisen with the sole purpose of making sure that the people most able to pay taxes do not pay taxes. That's their purpose, and oligarchs pay lawyers, accountants, lobbyists, and so-called wealth management professionals who move money around the globe in secrecy jurisdictions, and they lobby governments to make sure that they are the ones who do not pay taxes. Who pays taxes? All of you do, and I do, because we don't have the power and the wealth to employ an industry to make sure we don't pay. We don't have wealth defense capabilities that the rich have, that the oligarchs have. So, back to the definition, an oligarchy is defined as throughout history as the politics of wealth defense. And that defense takes many forms throughout history. Now, 
Um, I want to reconnect this briefly to the idea of democracy. Many people think, and, and it's mistaken, but many people think that as democracy increases, oligarchy decreases. This is wrong. This is a myth. And I can prove it very easily. The source of oligarchy is not the absence of democracy. The source of oligarchy is the concentration of wealth. And democracy is very compatible with the concentration of wealth. There is nothing inherently built into democracy that will challenge wealth concentration. And in fact, almost every democracy in the world is not only a happy place for oligarchs, but they dominate and control the democracy to make sure that it doesn't threaten them. How do they do that? Because they use their money to back candidates, to um, lobby, uh, and to hire lobbyists, and so on, to make sure that the agenda is constrained and to make sure that redistribution is nearly impossible. That's what they do. And so, we live in societies that are a combination of oligarchy and democracy at the same time. What I'm saying is, democracy is not a solution to oligarchy, even though we often think it is. It's not. Oligarchs are very happy under a system like yours and mine. It's not a problem. Now, um, think of democracy as a different kind of power. Democracy is participation power. Oligarchy is wealth power. Notice they're not on the same plane. And they're fully compatible in the same system. Now, I want to bring this story back to the Czech Republic now. So I've talked abstractly. What is oligarchy? How does it coexist with democracy. The Czech case is a very interesting one because you are obviously a blend of democracy and oligarchy. You have free elections, the elections are competitive, you have free speech, you're allowed to organize, you have multiple candidates, and you don't know the outcome in advance. You have a procedural democracy. However, the role of wealth power in your democracy is very prominent. Now, in most democracies, oligarchs are very happy to exercise their power indirectly. That is, they back professional politicians. As long as that politician is willing to support an oligarchic agenda, you will get the money that you need to run increasingly expensive campaigns. By the way, the more expensive campaigns become, the more powerful oligarchs are in an expensive system because they are the source of the money. So an expensive political system is ideal for an oligarch. And I live in the most expensive political system on the planet. And the role that our oligarchs play is, is overwhelming. So in your case, Oligarchs actually don't rule indirectly. They actually run as candidates. And they rule directly. So, you have a prime minister named Babish, who is an oligarch. Now, what's interesting about this era 
is that we are living in an era of oligarchic boldness. Throughout most of history, the ultra-wealthy have actually kept a very low profile, in part because they don't want to attract too much attention, because attention is dangerous. Too much attention, putting, putting yourself out there in the face of the people can be quite annoying. It can cause movements against you. But we are living in an era where oligarchs lack fear. They're not afraid today. Why? The answer is very simple. Because of the weakness today in this era of class politics. Labor unions and class politics have been destroyed pretty much globally. So what do oligarchs actually have to fear? Not much. And so that's why we are seeing them so prominently. Trump, Babish, Berlusconi, Taksin in Thailand, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono in Indonesia, and the list goes on and on and on of ultra-wealthy people who say, I don't need to express my power through politicians, I'm just going to do it directly. And that's the era we live in today. Now, there is a combination happening today which is very interesting. Oligarchs are one of three groups that are appearing on the world stage today, and they are driving a kind of right-wing populism. The three groups who are supplying the leaders are business oligarchs, first group, of which you know a lot in your own country here. Second group, military intelligence figures, such as Putin or Sisi in Egypt. And the third group, especially in um, countries where the division between religion and politics is not very sharp, you actually have religious figures coming forward. What's interesting about all three of these groups is that their institutional background is dictatorship. Every corporation is a dictatorship. It's not a democracy. The owner of a corporation says, do it, and it gets done. Military is not a democratic institution, and religious institutions are also not democratic. So the three types of figures who are coming forward in this populist era all come from actually anti-democratic backgrounds. And they're not very tolerant of criticism. First of all, politics is annoying in general. And so part of what they sell is efficiency. Didn't Babish say that I'm going to run the Czech Republic like a company, like a firm? Enough of this politics bullshit. Let's get things done in the way that a CEO tells his staff, get it done. That's the mentality of an oligarchic leader. And they're not accustomed to being criticized. The idea that you're going to be criticized by the press, by investigative journalists, by legislative commissions who are going to investigate your government, this is extremely annoying to an oligarch who comes from an institution of vertical power. But that is increasingly the kind of actor we see. And we see them in the United States. This is the mentality of Trump. Trump can't believe he's being investigated. How dare you investigate me? To him, it doesn't even make sense because he doesn't understand what democracy is and what accountability is. Doesn't make sense to him. And so he attacks the investigators, whether they are 
politicians or whether they are the media. And the media is an extremely important story also that connects to the Czech case. I'm not following my notes anyway, so I don't know what I'm... Uh, um. So, I want to close. How much time do I have? Just about done, yeah? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I want to close. Now, if we talk about... We, we have limited amount of time, so we can't talk about the many dimensions of what oligarchy and democracy look like when they are melded together. But I'm going to mention one area in particular, which is um, the area of what I just said a moment ago, media, criticism, and accountability. Now, the Czech Republic, as of four years ago, was the number one leader in Central and Eastern Europe in terms of the World Freedom Index. That is, your journalism and your media was ranked number 13 in the world out of 180 countries. You were very high. Media was free, and it was critical, and it was open. In the last four years, the Czech Republic has dropped almost 30 positions in the rankings. Why? It's because the leaders that you have in the country are the type of people I mentioned a moment ago. They are actually involved in the media, not because they believe in the free media, but because they want to own it. And to own it means to control it and to control the message. So it's a different kind of commitment. It's not a commitment to openness and transparency and fact and evidence and sources. It's not that kind of commitment. It's actually a commitment to propaganda. And propaganda, the difference between news and propaganda is that news actually as a profession must be sourced, it must be fact-checked, it must have multiple sources, and if you report false or incorrect news, the news media is supposed to do either two things, issue a correction or fire the journalist or the editor. That's the standard of actual news. But propaganda, so-called fake news, is actually, has only one purpose, to persuade and to push people onto a particular agenda. That's the only purpose of it. And what we increasingly see among the oligarchic and right-wing populist leaders around the world is that they are interested in propaganda and they are very hostile to reporters and actual news. And so, you have a president who actually waved a toy Kalishnikov on the TV and written on the toy Kalishnikov was for journalists, was the, what the gun was to be used for. Now you may say, oh, he was making a joke. That's not funny, even if it's done by a comedian, much less a powerful political actor. And so you have powerful political actors, the same man, President Zeman, routinely refers to journalists as hyenas and manure, cow shit. This is what he calls a journalist. That is not what a Democrat says. A Democrat does not like to be criticized. But their commitment to the
the freedom of the media is absolute. They don't want to shut it down and they don't want to intimidate it. But in the Czech Republic, your journalists and your media are intimidated by the power structure today. That is one consequence of the kind of people that oligarchic power structures deliver into positions of leadership. And it is a very serious problem. And so I'm going to close uh, just by um, saying the following. Um, democracy is impossible without independent, reliable, factual, critical information. If media and professional journalists are attacked to the point of collapse, all freedom of mind and body and politics will collapse with them. As are we in America, you in the Czech Republic are living in dangerous times. I urge you, in closing, to reflect carefully, to reflect carefully on how much wealth concentration and thus oligarchic power concentration is too much for a healthy society that values not just buying the latest name brand junk, but values freedom, human dignity, and a planet that will sustain us for generations to come. This is what we are thinking about in America, and this is what I urge you to be thinking about here as well. Thank you very much. Uh, Asi, eh, asi rozumíte, že mělo smysl dát prostor panu profesorovi Vintersovi, protože to jeho vystoupení asi nejlépe ukázalo, co nás zaujalo na jeho uvažování o oligarchii a na jeho knize o oligarchii. Já jenom řeknu, že vlastně až díky němu člověk zjistil, že na amerických univerzitách se používá video s českým prezidentem a s Kalašníkovem. Já jsem tomu ani nevěřil, a je to tak, oni to, ono se to používá jako pomůcka, na které se ukazuje studentům, jak prostě tady ve střední Evropě prezident se chová způsobem, který je vlastně i z důvodu, které popisoval pan profesor Winters nebezpečný pro demokracii. A já jenom bych rád řekl, že jenom velmi stručně, že pro mě to opravdu není jenom teorie, to jeho vyprávění o oligarchických rizicích pro demokracii, nebo že dokonce demokracie není něco, co by řešilo problém oligarchie. Já to vidím velmi konkrétně, jenom vám řeknu, já jsem členem komise pro zkoumání privatizace OKD za 30 let, od roku, ten proces od roku 90 vlastně až do dneška. A já tady nebudu předbíhat těm výsledkům, které budou nějak sdělovány, ale a snad bych to neměl říkat, ale řeknu, že to, co je tam pro mě nejzajímavější, je to, jak vlastně celou tu dobu těch 30 let, ať byl vlastně kdokoliv, jakákoliv vláda, tak vždycky ten stát vlastně v konfrontaci s těmi miliardáři, s těmi finančními oligarchy neustále selhával. Oni byli vždycky rychlejší, jednak měli lepší právníky, jednak si to dokázali domluvit a je to vlastně historie selhávání státu vůči finanční oligarchii, která nakonec to pole definitivně ovládne. Zmocní se toho, vycucá to a zase odejde jinam. A tak proto vlastně to pro mě není jenom profesorská teorie, 
ale něco, co vlastně tady můžeme konkrétně zažívat. To je opravdu realita a vlastně je třeba to pochopit, protože my jsme si po roce 89 všichni mysleli, že jsme vlastně všichni demokraté víceméně. A pak najednou zjišťujete to, co říká pan profesor, že z různých jiných prostředí vlastně jsou tady i úplně jiné návyky. A není to jenom to vojenské, je to biznis, vojenství a všude. Přicházejí s úplně jinou představou, jak se má chovat člověk ve světě. A to je něco, co vlastně tu demokracii může tak dokonale změnit, že my sice v ní žijeme a netušíme, že už vlastně žádnou schopnost ovlivňovat věci nemáme. Tak to mi připadá, že stojí za diskuzi a za přečtení. A já bych ještě požádal Ondřeje Lánského, který je ten, který to překládá, jako aby nám služe řekl, co ho na tom zaujalo podobně jako mě. Děkuji za slovo. Já bych rád nejdříve poděkoval za pozvání a možnost zde vystoupit. Já se pokusím říct to velmi rychle a pouze vlastně spíš navážu na některé prvky a ty věci, které byly řečeny panem profesorem Wintersem, týkající se oligarchie. Moje otázka, kterou si kladu dneska, protože kromě toho, že překládám tu knihu, tak se snažím tu, celou tu teorii, theory of oligarchy, aplikovat na situaci České republiky. A rozhodl jsem se tady dneska říct takové dva, nebo jeden významný bod, který si myslím, že nám může odpovědět na otázku, proč vlastně v České republice v posledních letech akceptujeme nejenom oligarchii jako takovou, ale i její vstup do demokracie a to vstup vlastně přímý. Čím to je, jaké typy odpovědi nám mohou na tuhle základní otázku pomoci vlastně odpovědět nebo najít prostě i řešení. A z tohoto důvodu si myslím, že jsou vlastně důležité dva, řekněme, politické vzorce, které jsou částečně psychologické a mají své, své působení i v společnosti a které jsou velmi hluboké a jsou velmi, poměrně velmi staré. Nejsou jenom věcí posledních 30 let, jsou starší. První z nich je, ten bych zatím nechal stranu, třeba se k tomu dostaneme v diskuzi, určitý, řekl bych, problematický vztah Čechů, omlouvám se, pokud se to netýká vás, ke státu jako k takovému. To je hluboká nedůvěra vůči státním institucím nebo vůči institucím jako takovým, kterou bych lakonicky vyjádřil tím českým příslovím z době normalizace, kdo nekrade, okrádá rodinu. To znamená vnímání státu jako jakési věci, která je nám k dispozici. Ale jak říkám, to bych nyní nechal stranou. Druhá věc je, jakým způsobem se v politice a potažmo v ekonomice pracovalo posledních, řekněme, 30 let vlastně s pojetím rovnosti, jakých podob nabývalo. A tady, abych tu otázku zodpověděl co nejrychleji, nám může velmi dobře pomoci podle mého soudu takový obraz, řekněme obraz tří významných osobností, které ale nejde o ně osobně, jde o to, že jsou symbolem, politickými figurami, které jsou významné a hrají roli v české politice. První z nich je samozřejmě postava Václava Havla, druhou z nich je postava Václava Klauze a všechno, co symbolizuje, a třetí je to, co bych v návaznosti na Jakuba Patočku nazval postavou Zembiše, to znamená kombinace Zemana a Babiše. Protože bohužel ta třetí postava je tedy 
ve skutečnosti složena z dvou významných politiků. A Tito lidé a jejich politika, to, co říkali, to, co bylo pro ně důležité, velmi významně formovali, nebo respektive vyjadřovali ty určité hluboké, poměrně hluboké tendence v české společnosti. Kromě toho, že samozřejmě můžeme vidět poměrně zásadní rozdíl mezi tím, jak vstupoval do politiky Havel a Klaus, tak v jedné otázce si byli v něčem velmi blízko. A to, a to byla otázka transformace té minulé ekonomiky, respektive struktury majetku v té společnosti do těch nových poměrů. To byla nějakým způsobem otevřená otázka. Václava Havla můžeme vnímat tedy nejenom jako politika, který zdůrazňoval svým způsobem význam občanské společnosti, ale také jako pro proponenta určitého typu transformace fungování společnosti, kterou by šlo nazvat restitucí. On byl jedním z těch, co prosazoval určitý typ restitucí, to znamená návratku, návratu majetku některým osobám vlastně tak, jak to odpovídalo stavu, dejme tomu před komunistickým pučem. Václav Klaus, jak víte, představoval jinou cestu toho, jak bychom měli transformovat vlastnictví v tom státě, a to je zejména ta otázka, řekněme, privatizace. Nemusíme zacházet do detailů, jak ta privatizace konkrétně probíhala, ale přijde mi tady zajímavé, že vlastně probíhala způsobem, který byl velmi divoký, byl velmi rychlý, byl poměrně nezajištěný nějakým právním rámcem a v zásadě se mu podařilo, a tady to není žádná moje originální myšlenka, tady navazuji na něco, co říká například Michal Hauser, český filozof, byla to vlastně svým způsobem nově pojatá koncepce rovnosti. Minulý režim, teď nechme stranu, jak se mu to dařilo, jaké to mělo přesně jaksi konotace, byl výrazně postaven na myšlence rovnosti. To minimálně v rovině toho, co o sobě ten režim říkal. A Václav Klaus, jemu se vlastně podařilo transformovat tu myšlenku rovnosti do nových podmínek kapitalismu. Ta, ta nová forma rovnosti zněla následovně. Každý může být kapitalistou, každý může být podnikatelem. Tím vzniká významná figura podnikatele v 90. letech jako osoby, která může vést naši společnost a pomalu se připravovala půda, myslím v rovině toho vzorce, pro budoucí postavu Babiše a dalších. Neříkám, že neexistovaly formy nějaké kritiky tohoto jevu. Například český filozof Jan Sokol už v roce 1997 hovoří o gangsterském kapitalismu v Česku. Nebo v populární rovině můžu připomenout film Dědictví anebo Kurva Hoši Gutentag, což je vynikající satyra, myslím, viděno z dnešní doby, v podstatě velmi brutálního chování nově vzniklého kapitalisty, což je ta slavná postava, řekněme, bohouše. A tohle je vlastně to, co stojí podle mého soudu uvnitř, nebo jakýmsi základem toho, proč velká část české společnosti akceptuje Andreje Babiše jako postavu, která je oligarchou, jako postavu, která neskrývá, tady navazuju na to, co bylo řečeno, která neskrývá 
to, že vstupuje do politiky vlastně s antidemokratickým pojetím politiky. Já budu řídit stát jako firmu, já budu rozhodovat, já budu vlastně fungovat tak, že to, co já chci, se bude realizovat. Tak to tedy vidím vlastně jeho v podstatě geniální schopnost propojit a vlastně dotknout se těchto hlubokých vzorců, které jsou, byly latentně přítomny v české společnosti, samozřejmě v kombinaci s tím, že kolem toho roku 2012-2013 začíná používat tu, řekněme, antikorupční rétoriku, to znamená, postavíme se proti tě, té korupci a tak dál. To, je, to podle mého soudu stojí ve své podstatě v základu jeho úspěchu. To znamená, vlastně se snažím říct, že potvrzuji, zdá se mi to, co říkal Jeffrey Winters, jako velmi platné. Demokracie skutečně nemusí a není v rozporu s oligarchií, ale možná by být mohla. Dovolte mi zakončit své krátké vystoupení otázkou. Chceme opravdu žít, nebo chcete opravdu žít ve společnosti, kterou vytvářeli bohatí pro bohaté? A pokud ne, pak je potřeba se zamyslet nad tím, co vlastně můžeme sdělat s tím hlavním, podle mého hlavním předpokladem demokracie a tím je snaha o co nejmenší koncentraci bohatství v rukou nějaké úzké Děkuji za pozornost.